This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are joined by Hadra Kati. She is an educator and perinatal mental health advocate and has worked for nearly two decades to create awareness of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and support those experiencing these issues. She is on the Postpartum Support International Advisory Council and her writing on mental health has appeared in various national media outlets. She does a lot of advocacy work, and she's going to talk a little bit with us about some issues that she's found negatively impact racialized perinatal women in particular, and also her role as a Muslim Parents Coordinator for PSI, and some other great insights on how we view perinatal mental health. So let's meet Hadra. Welcome, Hadra. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Happy to talk with you. I was real excited to recently meet you at the PSI conference and um, definitely have become more and more involved in the PSI world with newly being on the advisory council. And I just definitely wanted to have you on to talk about your work. So how did you get involved with postpartum mental health work? So again, thank you so much for having me on. And I really appreciate this opportunity. I got involved, I would say about over 20 years ago, I got pregnant and I was having my first baby. And I was like, you know, excited and happy, just like pretty much a lot of moms would be. But after I gave birth, I started to, you know, feel really sad and down. And Mm -hmm. I started developing anxiety and a lot of scary thoughts and stuff like that happened. And I remember being like, I don't know what's going on, but this, you know, doesn't really feel like me. And I went to the doctor a couple of times to try to figure out what was going on with me. But, you know, I never managed to get any type of diagnosis. I didn't get help. And, you know, after a couple of months of experiencing these kinds of issues, I kind of just got better on my own. Didn't think much of it at a time because, you know, in hindsight, when I thought about it, I was like, you know, maybe it was because, you know, mental health wasn't really on society's radar like it is 
nowadays, right? So I, I right. kind of figured that maybe, you know, the reason that I couldn't really get to the bottom of what was wrong with me was because of that. I didn't think much of it for a bunch of years. But then a couple of years later, like several years later, Brooke Shields and Tom Cruise had their really public fight about Brooke Shields postpartum depression. I don't know if you remember yes, that, but they had, I do. Yeah. So they had their really big fight where Tom Cruise, you know, was like lambasting her for taking anti her decision to, to take antidepressants to, you know, deal with her postpartum part of depression. And, you know, he was basically calling her an irresponsible mom and saying that moms with this kind of thing should be taking vitamins and minerals and, and, you know, giving a lot of unsolicited advice. And it was around that time as well that a friend of mine developed a a postpartum mood and anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And she had trouble getting help. And so that's combined with the Brooke Shields thing and the fact that, you know, I hadn't really gotten a diagnosis of what was wrong with me. They all kind of came together and kind of made me realize that, you know, postpartum depression is still very like kind of stigmatized. There's a lot of shame around it. Right. People are still having a lot of trouble getting help. So I wanted to be part of the solution to that. And so I came across Postpartum Support International and all the, the great work that they do. And I decided that I wanted to, you know, get involved and try to help connect moms to cool resources and just be there for them as they were trying to navigate this like difficult point in their lives. So that's how I kind of got involved in it. Yeah, that's some I think there are a lot of people who like me too, who have had a personal experience and it kind of propels them into this specialty and, uh, you know, supporting and advocating. But it unless you've been through something like this, it's hard to, I guess, either one, have perspective on just, you know, how difficult it, it can be and how disruptive to life it can be. But, but also having people to be able to sort of advocate and, and talk about it so that people who don't know what's going on can realize what is going on, like for the people they care about and that. And it just takes all of us really to be able to, you know, the collective of all of our voices, not only to speak up for other people who are going through it, but also the family members who are trying to be supportive or who don't know what's going on. It just, it takes so much education and getting the word out there. So you said that you've, the 20 years is a good long time to be in this field, especially with how much it has changed Mm -hmm. over time and how much more information is getting out there. What are, like, how do you see, what's your perspective on like how far we've come and where we still need to go? Oh, I think we've we've made tremendous strides because like I remember when I was first a coordinator with PSI, I believe I was like the only coordinator in the Ontario area. I'm from Canada. Mm. And um, now we have like, I think like 15 Ontario coordinators. That's like a huge number. And I remember even like pre-COVID, I was averaging, I would say about three calls a week, three Mm -hmm. calls a week, you know, to connect women to resources and stuff like that. Now I kind of get like maybe like one call a month. And that's why I branched off into being like a specialized coordinator and stuff, because like that just goes to show that like, to me, at least that we've made tremendous strides. We have more people, you know, willing to be pure peer support people and connect to resources. So, you know, I think we've come a long way and there's a lot more um, you know, articles being published on this topic. I have a, like a Google alerts and I see mm-hmm. it all the time. So it's like, it's like amazing the amount of movement we've made with respect to this topic. Yeah, that's so great to hear. So because there are so many more coordinators in your area, how big is, Ont- I don't have 
any perspective on how big Ontario area is. I'm not very good with things like that, but I do know like even in Toronto, which is like a main city, we have like hundreds of thousands of people just in the Toronto area and Ontario is in that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I've been hearing a lot about how much more Canada is expanding and just in terms of PSI expanding throughout Canada. And it's just, it's so nice to hear that so much more support is available. Um, Because that's like a lot of pressure if you're the one uh, coordinator for that whole region is, you know, it's hard to be a coordinator and get people to resources when there are not a lot of resources. Yes, exactly. Or like just, you know, trying to like be there to support them too. Like, it, especially if there's not a lot of resources in their area, then, you know, yeah. or support groups or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, great. I love that there's been so much progress in your area. So what are the other things? I know you've done some writing and what are the other areas of perinatal mental health that you've gotten into? I do a lot of writing. I also have like advocated for the creation of postpartum support services in my area. So I was part of like, you know, advisory groups at local hospitals and stuff like that, where I would advocate for the fact that there was no reproductive mental health facility in the catchment area and things like that. And I was part of like groups that that uh, created some programs for perinatal moms. So I've been doing that kind of thing, just like a lot of like community presentations and stuff like that, like going to my local mosque, midwifery groups and things like that, and just presenting on the topic. I've presented, I've been invited to present to like university medical student associations and stuff like that. So just like, you know, any kind of opportunity that I get to share information about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, I'm willing to to take those on. That's great. And I know one of your the areas that you write about and talk about is the impacts on racialized perinatal women. And for people who might be new to that term racialized, I'm wondering if you could start there. And then we can talk a little bit more about the things you've written about. Yeah. So in terms of racialized, I, you know, talking about like people of color. So just like, you know, anybody that's like a marginalized group within society, that are people of color. And, you know, there's a lot of barriers that people of color experience in terms of accessing help and things like that. So, you know, I've written about that. I've also written about the fact that, you know, it's not just with respect to perinatal women, but, you know, just racialized people in general in mental health in a mental health kind of setting or with mental health, having a, like a mental health crisis are, you know, very differently treated than non-racialized people. So like, you know, issues like that is what I like to talk about. And, you know, I wrote something recently about the fact that, you know, over the past year, there was another number of tragedies that occurred across the United States with mothers apparently seem to be suffering from postpartum psychosis taking the lives of their children. And it really saddened me when I saw that even within the perinatal mental health community, like there was so much light shone on the Lindsay Clancy case, which was very devastating with her taking the lives of her three children. But it was pretty much ignored the fact that there was all these, you know, black children who were who similarly suffered a tragic fate like them at the hands of mothers who were experiencing perinatal mental health crisis. And, you know, nobody really talked about that or nobody really pushed that as like as examples of what can happen when a perinatal mood disorder is left untreated. So, you know, those are the kinds of issues like I like to shine a light on. This podcast is supported by Posh Peanut. Raising a family can be tough, as we know, and it can also be amazing and beautiful. Posh Peanut gets it. 
which is why they make beautiful, soft clothing that is tough enough to withstand all of the rough and tumble of childhood. And they have sizing for parents as well. You could even get matching clothing for the whole family. Made from viscose from bamboo, the clothes stretch with your kid as they grow and are four times stretchier than cotton. These clothes are made to last, loved by parents and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to your favorite brands such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty and Barbie. It's also breathable and chemical free, which means they're delicate on sensitive skin. So I got my Posh Peanut loungewear and I've been putting it on, especially after my long client days, because I need the instant comfort and relaxation. It's one of the ways that I do my self-care because the soft, stretchy fabric of the Posh Peanut loungewear is really comforting to me. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code MIND. Go to poshpeanut.com slash mind and use promo code MIND for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash mind, promo code MIND. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Yeah, and I really do appreciate you bringing that in. I know that was a topic of concern and discussion, you know, I guess within some of the the PSI circles and to your point like yes it is important to be talking about the like the Lindsay Clancy case but because of so many reasons other people who maybe don't have with the writing that you did just around that particular writing what do you find what's the reception like are people writing into you and with comments or with thoughts or are you getting anybody who's like yeah, with the writing about those cases in particular, are you getting any feedback or people writing into you? What kind of reception is it getting? Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I did get a lot of feedback and people were like, wow, you know, I never really thought about it until you you mentioned it. You know, I didn't even know about those cases and can you give me the names of those women and things like that. And so I was happy that nobody was kind of like, why are you bringing this up? So that was good. And I mean, it had a, a hint of sadness in the fact that people didn't even know the names of those women. But I like to think that because 
I raise the issue and I've been raising the issue at opportunities that I get. I hope like now, you know, people are, are going to be more primed to kind of look out for these kinds of things. And I have had some people that, you know, some cases that I didn't even know that involved racialized women, people like now send it to me and they're like, hey, did you see this one? So that's kind of good. I feel like I kind of made people put on like their reading glasses a little bit better to kind of see these things. And people are pointing out themselves of things like, hey, you know, it's being twisted as as like an, a child abuse case rather than a maternal mental health issue. Whereas, you know, when the woman was non-racialized, it was talked about more as a maternal mental health issue. And so I think that, you know, people are starting to like zoom in on it. So that's a good thing that's happened, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you brought in that point in that perspective, because I was going to ask you about it, that what have you seen just in, you know, the looking into it that you've done, the writing about the different women's stories, how differently it's characterized, and if you can offer your thoughts on the why for it's characterized in such different ways. Yeah, so like it's completely characterized very, very differently. Like there's a lot more sympathy when the person is non-racialized and the focus tends to be maternal mental health. You know, like what could cause a woman to do this? type of framing. Whereas when the cases were like racialized, it was more about like the discussion was centered around the fact that some of these women were homeless or lived in shelters or were divorced, like as if these things like as if those women kind of took their children's lives because, you know, it was just hard. It was just like mothering in these circumstances was hard. And that's why I was kind of really deeply hurt when the voices of like fellow advocates and stuff was kind of silent because I was like, no, we got to reframe this as a maternal mental health issue, because if you actually look at the stories, you can see that these women were buried in the stories were things like the women were hallucinating or they were delusional. And those are important to understanding that it was a, a maternal mental health issue. So I personally just think it's like just more racism. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's easier when the person lives in a beautiful house with a white picket fence around it. It's easier for people to identify with that than, you know, something else. Right. So it's yeah. like, oh, wow. Like, oh, oh, like I'm a teacher. She was a teacher. You know, I have three kids. She has three kids type of thing. And then like we might look at other cases and be like, well, she lived in a shelter and that's what like sticks out as a sore thumb. So I think that that's what it is. Like we look at things that we can, you know, more so identify with. And that's not fair because, you know, all of these things have the same underlying issue. And if they had gotten help, they also wouldn't be in that kind of place. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're also speaking to, as you were saying, racism and just in general about and how some supports are systemic reasons that some supports are offered to some people and not to others or more available to some and not others. Just kind of speaking more uh, broadly about all perinatal mental health, what are some of the issues that you uh, find impact racialized women? Well, a big one, I think, is lack of access and a lack of access to quality care. Mm -hmm. I mean, although this kind of impacts everybody, it more so impacts those that are racialized because I think the statistics are something like one in 10 Americans doesn't have health insurance. And we know that racialized people are overrepresented among these this group, this population, you know, for various reasons, like systemic factors and racism and all this kind of stuff. And it, I find like in the work that I do with the PSI in terms of trying to help people, what this leads to is that like, even when women are having mothers are having concerning symptoms, because they don't have health insurance, um, they want to take more of a, like a wait and see approach. And depending mm. on their symptoms are, 
this can lead to very dangerous outcome. Like, you know, yeah, if the person yeah. is like hearing voices, like that's immediate, like go to the hospital. But mm. if you take a wait and see approach, you might not have a lot of time to wait and see what happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And so even when I'm able to like, you know, arrange something or facilitate something so that they can be seen by somebody, then you no, know, the lack of insurance concerns like creates this like, but what about follow up care? How am I going to pay for the medications? And so it's not like you can even like one time get them into somewhere like they have all these issues about like, why they don't even want to go to that one appointment to check out what's going what the issue is so it's like a real issue and then some people will be like well you know what there's medicaid for people who don't have private insurance but Mm. that's i recently learned that that's not really the case because there are some people that don't qualify there's like financial and non-financial criteria you have to meet and there's a bunch of people that don't even qualify for medicaid and then Even for people that do qualify for Medicaid, there's the whole issue of how there's not a lot of specialists that sign up to be Medicaid providers, you know, because the pay is less and things like that. So and then I found out that this is especially the case for psychiatrists. There's not a lot of psychiatrists signed up to be Medicaid providers. And that's because like the psychiatric issues, like they tend to be severe, complex and chronic in nature. So they don't want to sign up to be Medicaid providers for that reason. And so that's why I say like there's the lack of access to care, lack of access to quality, good quality care for those relying on Medicaid. And, you know, this is not like just an American problem. Like in Canada, we have universal health care. And so that which means that you can be seen by a doctor and even a psychiatrist and that's covered by the government. But then there's like women that will contact me and you know, maybe, you know, they've been screened by the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist is like, okay, you're not at the point where you need medication, but you would benefit from psychotherapy. And we all know that CBT is like, you know, amazing for like even serious cases of postpartum depression. Then when I'm like, okay, I can find you this perinatal mental health certified psychotherapist, people are like that don't have insurance because our Mm -hmm. universal healthcare doesn't extend to psychotherapy services. And they're like, yeah, so it doesn't extend there. So it's like, then they don't want to, you know, go to benefit from that. And it could really benefit them because we know that maternal mental health issues not only takes an impact on the person having it, but the family, the child, everything. So, you know, I see that hesitancy there and that's sad. And, you know, it doesn't have to be this way because the England, they have the NHS and they have universal health care, but it also extends to psychotherapy services. Mm-hmm. So, you know what? Like, yeah, Canada is doing it a little bit better than maybe America. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, there are still places out there that are doing it a lot better than all of us. And and I yeah. think that that is an issue that that really impacts racialized and marginalized people a lot more. I mean, it, it does, again, impact everybody to some extent, but I see it particularly in those groups. Yeah, I thank you for speaking a little bit to the healthcare system in Canada as well. It's not something I'm super familiar with, but you know, there's obviously in the US a lot of, well, if we had universal healthcare, it would fix a lot of things and maybe it would fix some things, but what I am hearing across the board, even from the little bit that I do know is that there, the waits for help are so long. We, even if you have insurance, the waits are really, really long and it's impacting people across the board. But certainly even let's say sort of all things being like equal in terms of, let's say, socioeconomic status, career and whatnot, even if those things are on the same playing field, racialized perinatal women are still getting subpar treatment. Can you 
Has that been something that you touched on too in your writing? Fine on touching on that. Like one other issue, like even with like, you're just saying like socioeconomic status, all that kind of thing being equal. Another area that I see, you know, racialized women being racialized and immigrant women, particularly being negatively impacted is in the area of, or it's with respect to the fact that there's no universal screening for perinatal mood and anxiety Mm. disorders. Mm -hmm. And because of this, I think that racialized and immigrant people in particular are negatively impacted because a lot of times like if you come from a culture that conceptualizes mental illness differently it can mean you actually don't know about your family history of mental illness right true and if you come from a country that didn't have ready or easy access to mental health services again you may not know your family's mental health history Mm -hmm. And if screening tools are used for people with known risk factors, Mm -hmm. you're missing a whole bunch of people that just don't know their risk factors, right? And so that's another way in which I see like what we're doing right now can be radically improved. Just, you know, literally like when I was like first getting into perinatal mental health advocacy work, I was like, you know, I noticed that I had never been screened the times that I went to the doctor and I was like, what is this screening tool? Mm -hmm. It must be like something huge. And then I came across it and I was like what like <laughs> literally they couldn't yeah. take like three minutes to ask yeah. me these questions totally. and you know honestly like if I had been like I've gone back in time and did the Edinburgh screening tool on myself and I would have scored like off the charts mm-hmm. like off the charts like if they had just taken the time to just do that and that's like really pathetic and sad you know it totally is it definitely is i mean there, and there's all kinds of issues with the reasons why screening isn't done in general no one told us the truth about parenthood why This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell?, laughing in the face of motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. What are your thoughts on why racialized women are not being screened or not as much? Well, one of the reasons is just because maybe they don't score 
on the fact that they have those risk factors because, you know, they'll be like, no, I don't have any mental health history in my family. That's really, you didn't know you had a mental health history because it's conceptualized differently in your community or, you know, in your family, or it's just, you know, it wasn't talked about in that way. And another reason I think is that, you know, I think that profiling has a lot to do with it too, in terms of how healthcare providers print, see different communities. Like, I don't know, Kat, if you know about something called BB syndrome, do you know, have you ever heard of that? BB syndrome? So BB syndrome is this phenomena that's like this way that UK healthcare providers have this little label that they attach to South Asian women. And they, it's a very sexist, racist way of describing women who they think, particularly South Asian women, who they think exaggerate the extent of their symptoms. So they'll be like, oh, you got somebody with BB syndrome in room one. It's like automatically like assume that this woman is like hyper exaggerating her symptoms just to get attention, like this kind of thing. So I think that there's a lot of like profiling of like, you know, of different racialized communities. Like, you know, there was one study, I believe, where they said that like, medical students or like, uh, yeah, I think it was medical students thought that different races perceived pain differently. Mm. And, you know, like some communities could tolerate more pain than others. And it's just like ridiculous. So yeah, that is like a way long holdover of enslavement and racism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like eugenics and stuff. And, And so I think that profiling has a lot to do with it. I think also the fact that like, again, like different communities might talk about symptoms in a different way, right? So mm-hmm. even in my own work, like I sometimes have parents that will call me and then they'll be like, no, my daughter's not acting like herself. She's not cooking. She's not cleaning. She's like this. And it's more on what she's not doing rather than the emotions that she's exhibiting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think all of those things like come into play, like there's some profiling, there's just different ways that symptoms are communicated and then there's like the whole fact about like risk factors and you know whether you know about your risk factors or not these kinds of things all come into play and then that's why I think universal screening is so important so that you just like cut across all of that kind of stuff and you're just like doesn't matter if you're black blue red or purple you immigrated or you didn't immigrate like you're all going to be asked these questions you know yeah absolutely So I want to talk for a little bit and learn more about what you're doing as a Muslim parents coordinator for PSI. But in that role, I'm curious what you see specifically as negative impacts for Muslim parents in terms of perinatal mental health. Okay, so in my role as a Muslim parents coordinator, I take calls from Muslim moms and parents that are experiencing perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and their families. And I kind of try to help to navigate the questions they have about being Muslim and having a perinatal mood disorder. Mm -hmm. So some of the questions that I address and I see coming up is that, you know, they kind of wonder if having a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder or a mental health issue is somehow connected to a lack of faith, you know, whether it's like evidence that they're not, you know, as committed to their faith, they're doing something wrong when it comes to their faith. Another issue that I see is like, you know, People kind of being like, no, I've been told that this is what's going on and I should seek help. But, you know, kind of from a faith perspective, isn't all that I need to do is just pray, pray Mm -hmm. to heal myself and get over it. And so, you know, I'll get questions like that. And then I have people that, that contact me and they're concerned about, you know, like how 
it's like viewed from a religious standpoint if they were to be going in and discussing their private issues with a therapist, with a therapist that's not maybe of their same background. Like, is that something that's bad? Because a lot of times, you know, stress and stuff can like stress can can be tied to why a perinatal mood disorder is manifesting and they kind of feel like is it bad if I'm talking about my junk with like you know a therapist so these are kind of like the questions that people bring to me and want to you know want help navigating around in your role as coordinator for PSI are people talking about negative experiences they're having like with the healthcare system or providers because they are a Muslim parent through that yeah. lens. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that sometimes what I see happening is like that same kind of issue of where like profiling is kind of getting people dismissed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's meant well, I think, but it's like kind of like overcompensating for having a lack of cultural competency from before. So for example, I've seen cases where like women, Muslim women may go in and they're like, oh, you know, I'm hearing like voices. And I think that pretty much for, I would think that that should be like a tip off to any mental health provider that maybe this person is like, you know, hallucinating or should be examined for psychosis. But then it's like they're over um, overcompensating and being like, well, maybe this is part of your like cultural tradition, of, well, like immediately <laughs> running to that. Right. Yeah. 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 So oh, and it's like and then that person, if they're in a delusional state, they might say, yeah, it is because they might feel like it is a religious experience. You know what sure. I mean? Sure. That and gets so really then, sticky. Yeah, it gets into like a sticky thing. So I think that like it's really important for mental health providers and doctors and stuff to know, like if this isn't part of their normal baseline, like they don't regularly hear voices like outside of the postpartum period, I think you should always view it as an indication that that person is psychotic and not try to be like overcompensating. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So I see like, and not rely on that woman who might be in a disturbed state to tell you what her beliefs are, because that may be her beliefs at that time because of what she's experiencing at that mm-hmm. moment. So yeah, so I've seen that kind yeah. of thing happening. Yeah, that is that makes a lot of sense the kind of over overcompensating in your role as muslim parents coordinator what are you hearing from families that are able to to reach you and get support from you about just how beneficial it is that you are able to provide that support oh yeah they're really like you know very very grateful they're very grateful for to be able to connect with somebody that kind of understands where they're coming from and can address those issues from a place of like shared heritage, right? Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I'm able to share with them things like the fact that like, you know, when they're approaching me with like, should I just be like praying? And is it because of lack of faith? You know, they're so happy that I can give them information about how like historically the Muslim community or the Muslim world viewed mental illness and the way that it's Mm -hmm. always been viewed by the Muslim world is that it's exactly the same as a physical condition you're expected to seek help it's not perceived as like demonic possession it's not perceived as evidence of a lack of faith and this is why like you know i'm able to share with them that facts like like the fact that historically it was muslims that were at the forefront of pioneering the humane treatment of those mental health issues you know we didn't shy away from engaging in talk therapy and taking medications using music therapy and aromatherapy and they're like wow i didn't know all this stuff (laughs) that's cool and it's like yeah and it's cool and then it it helps them like understand that it's actually part of our heritage to seek help and use the tools that are out there and it's 
not in conflict with our faith. It's actually part of our faith to do so. So then that kind of emboldens them and makes them feel like, oh, like now I know it. It's like my job to go get help for this, you know? And so so much more empowering than feeling like there's something, you know, wrong with you for having this really human experience. Yeah, exactly. They've anybody that I've connected through in this role, like I actually pitched the idea of this role because I was getting a lot of people would see my name online and then they would call me and be like, are you Muslim? And sometimes like people call me and it's not even a perinatal mental health issue. It's just like a mental health issue in general. And so it's been very good. It's been very like nice for me to be able to give that kind of information to people, make people feel comfortable with seeking out help and care and returning to their baseline. Absolutely. And it so much speaks to the need for you in your role and for people doing things like you're doing. I mean, there's no way to get around how powerful it is to have somebody who gets you on this really foundational level. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the most powerful things that PSI does, because it's easy for somebody to hear, you know, another person say things like, you should go on medication, you should do this if you're having this. And it's a whole other level for somebody to say, you know what, I had this, I did this. And then it's like, oh, it's not like you're being talked down to. It's like, you know, so that's one of the things I love most about PSI. I know this is not an advertisement for PSI, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, that's what I feel. And that's why women and parents that contact us, they feel comfortable because they know you're not like a doctor. They know you're like one of them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You can almost hear it. A while back, I was a coordinator also, and you could just almost hear it immediately yeah. when somebody feels like heard and understood. And I assume some level of safety, yes. how much more relaxed they are, or at least feeling like there's a path to healing, a little bit of magic. And that's why, like, even when I was asked to join the advisory council at PSI, I was like, can I still be a coordinator? Because <laughs> I get all the good feelings from, from being able to, you know, on yeah. the ground, connect to women and families to resources and just being there for them, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for the work that you do and bringing your voice to the writing and also your advocacy, because it is so incredibly powerful and you're attending to a huge need in the advocacy and the work that you're doing. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about it. Thank you, Kat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Hadra, for being on with us. And for those of you who listen today and are interested in getting more involved with volunteer work in a perinatal mental health, you can go to postpartum.net and look on the website for uh, different volunteer opportunities that are within PSI. And for those of you who are needing a little bit more support, PSI also has a directory to find perinatal mental health therapists and a ton of online support groups and other resources. If you individually are looking for support but can't quite find a therapist yet, I do offer online courses for postpartum moms. And you can find those on wellmindperinatal.com slash courses to help you try and understand a little bit more about what's going on for you and get some really useful skills that you can use right now. Those courses are on demand and you can use them at your own pace in your own time. I thank you so much for being with us today. Until next time. 
Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.